0: I am so impressed that many of you endured the harsh, violent winter weather to come to church. Rain in Southern California is like meteor showers everywhere else. <laughs> Only the brave go out in them. Uh, my name's Mike McNichols and it's my privilege to be with you this morning. We heard this morning that Jesus lived by the sea He made his home uh, in an ancient land. Jesus, for a season, had a home. And it was in a particular place and he was close to the sea. You know, when we consider the various forces that have formed our, our lives, the way that we perceive reality, the way that we look at other human beings, how we determine for ourselves what it is that constitutes the good life, we, we typically think of things like um, families and friends and our local communities, our schools. We, we think of politics and economics and all kinds of other societal and cultural forces. But what we don't often think about in terms of our own formation is land. In the places where we live, land is really just another commodity to be bought and sold. It's a, it's a place to construct a, a house to live in. It's a place to have a, a business. It, it's carved up. It's marked by specific boundaries. But really, land is a lot more formative than we think. Once a few years ago, after hearing somebody speak at length about, about their love for America, I started thinking, what does I really mean when we say something like that? When you say you love a nation, An entire nation, what is it that that we mean by that? The land of our country, a deep love for that. I mean, you wouldn't mean the entire nation because at some time or another, everybody's got a beef with the government. Not a lot of love going that direction. Um, There are people who bother you. There are places you have visited that you will never ever go again for a whole lot of good reasons. Um, And there's even places that you've never been. If you've never been to Arkansas, you don't know anybody who lives in Arkansas, how do you love Arkansas? And yet, it's part of the nation that we say that we love. So is it the nation's principles that we love? Can can you really love a principle? Uh, You might affirm it, you might appreciate it, but love may not be the right word to really describe it. So when we think about it, our, our love of the land in, that we inhabit is a, is a lot more limited and nuanced than perhaps we think. So we could say that we love what's familiar to us. That would include all the people we know and love, the spaces that we occupy, uh, our local communities. Maybe we, we love our work that we do. Uh, but it would also include the landscape that has become this visual comfort to us. And, and for most of us, that's as much of the nation as we're going to experience. Uh, when my wife, Emily, and I moved uh, from the against the foothills below Mount Baldy off to the north, wherever I am here, that way, uh, to Orange County, it was um, we both felt this great sense of loss when those those great mountains were no longer readily visible to us. And of course, there was a time they were only visible for six months out of the year anyway because of the smog, but nevertheless, they they were there and we knew they were there. We had grown up in the shadow of those mountains and and the whole change in optics was disconcerting. Uh, I couldn't figure out where north was anymore with the mountains being gone. And, And so I had to realize that how much my perception of the good life was formed by that particular landscape. The repeated reference in uh, our readings this morning of the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, the whole region of Galilee, as it's called, in Israel, speaks not only the formation of the residents but also about the expectations of Israel. The, this apparent place of, of darkness, far from the worship center of Jerusalem, a, a, an ethnically mixed, loose confederation and tribes of, of tribes and villages was overseen by One of King's evil sons, probably the most tolerant of his sons. The area had a, a history of political activism and occasional violence. And the prophet Isaiah spoke of that region, spoke of a time when that dark place would receive a great light. And it was in this darkly and beautiful, I'm told, region where Jesus made his home, it's where he dwelt. And it was here where Jesus revealed God's intentions when he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now the gospel of Mark refers to this declaration as the good news, the gospel. In the gospel of Mark, Jesus says the same thing, but he adds in repent and believe in the good news, the good news of the kingdom. So if anyone ever asks you, what is the gospel? You could just tell them what Jesus said It's the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. That is right at the heart of what we call the gospel. Well, it's kind of interesting for us to stop and think for a moment about Jesus actually having a home, a home by the sea in a particular land in the region that we would call Galilee. It's probably easy for us to imagine him being outside all the time, uh, walking and talking, healing people, right along a road somewhere, or maybe in a meadow under a tree, sitting on a rock. But it's a little different to imagine him occupying a physical space that we would describe as a home, a a place in a land with a community of people, a a place that's surrounded by, by hills and valleys and bordered by a coastline. Jesus made his home in a very real place with real people, people formed by that landscape, And it was in that diverse, politically divided, sometimes violent land where Jesus made his very first declarations about the proximity of the kingdom of God. I have to wonder what people thought when he first said those words. I mean, surely they would have just looked around, scratched their heads a little bit, and and tried to figure out what it was that he was even talking about. If God's kingdom was really on the horizon, his Jewish friends might say, then what were all these Gentiles doing in the land? They don't belong here. They've been here for a long time. And what about the tyrants who always seem to be in charge of things, the the Caesars and the Pilots and the Herods and all of their kinfolk? Are they all part of this big kingdom plan? And, And look around you, people still get sick, they still get hurt, they still die. There's oppression, there's injustice all around. Where is God's kingdom in the midst of all of that? Well, Matthew's gospel account doesn't immediately move into some kind of a theological or or sociological explanation of all of this. Instead, as soon as the announcement of the kingdom is made, The gospel moves Jesus right into the act of calling his disciples. It starts off with Peter and Andrew, and and Jesus uses a, a rather ironic analogy to catch their attention. He says that they're going to change their careers as fishermen. They are no longer going to catch fish. They're going to catch people. Now it's an ironic analogy because catching fish actually results in moving those poor creatures from life to death, like in a frying pan. Um, But Jesus' agenda is to draw people from death to life, from darkness to the revelation of a great light. And so Jesus calls the few and they follow. And while they will become very close friends with Jesus, they very quickly learned that their calling is not simply for their benefit. Jesus takes them with him. He visits the local synagogues. He continues his declarations about the good news of God's kingdom and his disciples just keep going with him. And they are now participants with Jesus as he continues to speak of God's coming rule and reign on earth. And then we're told something rather startling. Jesus didn't just talk, he cured every sickness and every disease among the people. Now, of course, Jesus will eventually travel to Jerusalem and do a lot of the same things, but he doesn't start his work at Israel's preferred worship center. He starts way out at the margins where the the people of this controversial land make their homes. And he has selected the few, not for their exclusive benefit, but for the sake of others. And his words about the proximity of God's kingdom will take tangible shape when bodies are healed and restored at Jesus' touch. And when this happens, people will have to consider the possibility that even sickness and death will no longer be allowed to have the last word when God's kingdom is at hand. You know, this question about the effects of God's kingdom actually being near, being at hand, is a question that continues to stand in our time. We consider Jesus' words, and then we look around. We wonder about all the difficult, sometimes disastrous things that that happen in the world. How does the reality of God's kingdom come to bear in a context such as ours? Well, it it isn't unusual for for some people when seeing difficult events unfold in the world to sort of default to the maxim, well, God's in control, which is really a way of just describing a perspective on what's called the sovereignty of God. So when difficult things happen, when problematic power structures emerge all over the world, claiming that God is in control might be a way of saying that God knows exactly what he's doing when he arranges all of this drama. After all, either he's in control or he isn't in control. It's his kingdom, right? But sovereignty and control are not necessarily the same thing. A sovereign is a king or a queen, A Sovereign is a a ruler, Uh, and, and we do indeed believe that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of Jesus, rules over all things. But this realm that we call planet Earth is populated by people who are broken and rebellious. God rules and reigns over the Earth, but the Earth is a realm that's a bit of a mess. How then do we come to understand anything about the presence of God's kingdom in the land that we inhabit, in the place that we dwell. One of the scandals of Christianity is its particularity. And what I mean by that is that we make the claim that God's work of salvation, a salvation that's aimed at the the entire world came not in in the way of some kind of a a universal global mandate, but rather in a particular demonstration of God's coming kingdom in the backwaters of Palestine 2,000 years ago by a lone wandering street preacher. That's particular, isn't it? And that particularity continues through a small chosen group of people given the assignment to make disciples of all nations. But that just seems to be the way that God does things. He calls out a particular people, and he calls them out in the particularities of history because that's where things actually happen, is in history. And so he calls out a particular people, Abraham and his descendants, to a particular plot of land in the Middle East, and out of that people's history will come a particular man named Jesus, who proclaims and demonstrates the incoming reality of the kingdom of God. The kingdom manifests itself, it makes itself known, not in the global power of domination or control, but by the demonstration of an alternative reality of justice and peace, hospitality, forgiveness, love, and healing. It doesn't come in universal control but rather in particular acts of ministry enacted by particularly, particular gatherings of faithful people. And so here we are, and we, we stand right now pretty close to the beginning of a brand new calendar year, even a, a new era for our country, some would say. But for us, really, th- this year's not so new. See, our year started almost two months ago as we entered into the season of Advent, as we reflected on the particular coming of Jesus at his birth, and also on the hope and expectation of his return. We've already been busy navigating the story of the ages, and we find ourselves today in a place of wonder as we consider God's revelation of himself in the person of Jesus the Christ. And we do this right in the context of a world that suffers turmoil. And like all who have trusted their lives to Jesus, we express our faithful lives in worshiping communities like this that are bound to particular places in particular times in history. We live out the implications of the presence of God's kingdom in the land where we make our homes, in the land where we dwell. And with every act of kindness and generosity, with every expression of love and forgiveness, with every welcome that we extend to the stranger, with every prayer that brings the suffering and hurting into God's healing presence, we participate in the nearness of the kingdom of God. In effect, by doing that, we are making good on the claim that Jesus made that God's kingdom is at hand. When we hear the words, do not fear, resonating through our scriptures as they do, we should not hear them as a call to some form of denial or naive acceptance of our life circumstances, our global circumstances. Instead, they are words that summon us to the presence of God's kingdom where there is no fear. The dramas of our world are very real, and it's not that they are somehow unimportant. But in the presence of God's kingdom, those dramas do not have the last word. And as we rehearse our ongoing story through the seasons of our church year, we remember that. In Jesus, God grants us his first word and his last word. And it's in the revelation of that word, the word made flesh that has come to dwell among us, that we can live as God's people for the sake of the world. And it's in that revelation that we can declare, along with the psalmist, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear?" Let's wait now in silence.